Hello and welcome everyone to Westside Christian Church. Today, John Wade is bringing the teaching to you. So grab a Bible and join us as we study God's Word together. started in on love. But do we know what love really looks like? We've talked about what love is before and that we need it as Christians, that it's both emotion and choice. It's not raw, unguided, uncontrollable sense and reaction. It's conscious and concerted and it involves will and hard work. You feel it. You experience it, but you work on it and you build it. Love doesn't just happen. It's not some unfathomable enigma like in all the terrible Disney movies and TV shows that uh, you've seen. Hashtag Beauty and the Beast. No, love is certainly mysterious, but it's not inexplicable. It's not unexplainable. It's certainly not incomprehensible. People know what love looks like. In fact, love is pretty easy to see in the world around us. We can recognize when it's there and when it's not there. The entire entertainment industry is built on the idea that almost every single human being on the planet can recognize love when they see it. If I showed you two pictures, one with a mother holding her newborn baby and the other picture of a mother abusing her child, you would have no problem picking out which photo represented love. We know what love looks like. We know when it's real, and we know when it's absent. Love is not inexplicable. Peter's going to address in our passage this morning what love looks like for a Christian, what its, its attributes look like. We talked a little bit about love last time and uh, saw from Paul um, what love looks like. But now I want to see what does Peter say about love. And it's very striking how similar some of the, the texts are on this. And I think as we read this, it helps us understand how we should love one another in the church and how we should love one another as brothers and sisters and I think it will help us as we uh, apply that, um, that, and we try to apply this in our lives. So let's go ahead and uh, have a word of prayer together, and then uh, we'll dive into our text uh, and read that and then um, study it. So Father, we pray this morning as we approach your word that you will help us. Father, we, we sometimes misunderstand your word, sometimes it is mysterious, but Father, this morning, I believe it's very plain, but it's difficult because love does not come naturally, not this type of love. Father, it is a very supernatural type of love that only you can empower us to have, and Father, we pray that you would, that you would inhabit um, the thoughts of our minds, the emotions that we experience, that you would change us from the inside out and that we would exhibit this type of love for one another as your people. Father, we do love you by your power and grace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. If you have a Bible, open up to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we are in verse 1 through 3 this morning. And it says this, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants, infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Something really important to understand when reading your Bible is that the chapter and verse divisions were not in the original text. I say that sometimes and people are like, what? It surprises them. They think that that's always been there because they've always seen it that way, but it's not in the original text. That's actually a very, very modern tool. Uh, It wasn't until the 1500s that people started putting verse markings and chapter markings uh, in their Bibles, uh, and especially scholars did this so they could carefully and quickly reference uh, different verses, uh, different pieces of scripture. So these are not original markings, and in fact, it can be very detrimental to our reading of scripture to have it broken up like this sometimes, because here we see the start of a new chapter, but we also see the word so starting the chapter. So, so what? So what? Seriously, what's it referring to? What was just said previously in chapter 1? It is referring back to the end of chapter 1. In fact, the entirety of what's been written before, but immediately his previous statements on love. He tells us to love, and then he gives us instructions on what does love look like? What is it? Uh, what does uh, the practicality of love look like in our lives? If we love one another as Christians, what will that play out like in our lives? So he says so. When Peter writes this letter, he's not writing it to be read in bits and pieces like we're studying it. He's writing it to be read as one cohesive message, a series of connected thoughts and statements and instructions. And while these chapter and verse divisions are certainly helpful modern tools to reference things and find pieces of scripture quickly... They do create difficulty of sometimes splitting up the message that the author intended to be read as one message. So he says, so. He says, so, referring back to the previous statements where he says, you should love one another. You should love one another as Christ loves you. You should love one another as brothers and sisters, as family. And he says, he says, you should do so earnestly. I think that's so very important for us to recognize. There's this word in Greek here, un, says therefore, therefore. So it's a conjunction that connects these two. If you want to love, then it must look like this. If you want Christian love, it must look like this. That, therefore, this. The two are connected inextricably. You can't separate the two. You can't say, oh yes, I love, and then not have these things that follow because of this word. One little word, one little conjunction in the Greek. Therefore, then, so, if you love, it will look like this. Invariably. You don't get an option. So what are the marks, according to Peter, of real love? What does the love that springs forth from our identity in Christ Jesus 
look like? There's another Greek word that's very important in the text. Peter says, uh, apotithemi, means put off, take off, put away. Also can mean uh, to take off as one takes off an item of clothing, to put aside, to lay aside, or to remove. And that's exactly what Peter intends when he says the following. He says to put off, to take off, to get rid of, to remove all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, and all slander. He says get rid of it. Give it up. Surrender it for good. Peter isn't saying take it off like you would a bathrobe and hang it on the door so you can pick it up tomorrow. Peter's saying get rid of it for good. Peter isn't saying store it in a cupboard like the salt and pepper that you'll pull out again tomorrow. He says get rid of it. Remove it. I like the way that Paul words it when he speaks of getting rid of such things. He says kill it. Everyone for, for going to the, the end of a meaning of something uh, and doing so very aptly with language, Paul says, kill it, put it to death, bury it, and never dig it up, never exhume the evil things that Christ died to put to death in you. So what are these things that Peter says to get rid of? What are these attitudes, these behaviors that keep us from genuine love? What are the things that hinder us from loving one another as we should as Christians? Number one, he says malice. We don't often use the word malice in English. Anybody remember the last time you used malice? I do because I wrote the sermon, but... (laughs) But no, we don't use malice often anymore. Our usage of the word has actually decreased exponentially over the last 250 years. If you didn't know, and well, most of you probably don't care, but if you didn't know, there's a really cool tool on Google for nerds like myself who love language and words that you can trace the usage of words over time and see if the usage has increased or decreased over time. Generally speaking, it's not a perfect tool, but it is very helpful. And over the last 250 years, you can watch the line for the usage of malice decrease. The word's not used very often anymore, save for scripture and possibly a movie or two. Like when they have those great announcers with the deep voice that says, in a world that's you know troubled by fill in the blank, in a world that's filled with water, In a world that's shaken by earthquakes. Whatever it is. Whatever it is based on the movie. He'll say something about malice. About the villain being full of malice. We don't often use the word. But malice is such a good word. In English it means the intention or desire to do evil. Or ill will. It's spite. Malevolence. Here's another word that we don't use. uh, Another couple words we don't use very often. Rancor. Or animus. In Greek, the word is kakia, uh, and it's a bit—it's a bit broader in Greek than than our word in English. The word means evil and wickedness, not only ill intention, but also the actual doing of evil, your evil deeds, your evil actions. So Peter's saying, purge yourself of all evil action and intention. Not just the, the doing, but the thinking, the, the um, uh, preparing to do evil. He says, purge your mind of desiring to do ill. 
and of actually doing ill to your brothers and sisters. Restrain your actions so that um, you are not doing these, these wrong things. Peter says, don't do malicious things. Instead, you should desire to do good for your brothers and sisters. You should try to benefit your fellow believers. But he doesn't stop there. He says it's not enough just to not cause somebody harm. Peter says that love also is getting rid of all deceit. Peter says we have to get rid of all deceit, which means not just dishonesty, but also guile and trickery. That means, folks, we have to stop lying to each other as Christians. We have to stop misleading each other. We have to stop deceiving and deluding and defrauding and misrepresenting and misinforming and betraying one another. Any hindering of or disguising of the truth in an effort to harm or even prevent good for your brothers and sisters in Christ or to even protect your own sin, has got to stop. Peter says, put it away. Put it to death. If you want to be a follower of Christ, if you want to actually love as you are commanded as a follower of Christ to love, you have got to get rid of all deceit. Hypocrisy is another one, Peter says. He says we've got to get rid of hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is such a good one because as human beings, we are all hypocrites. Hypocrisy is pretending, and we're all very good at pretending. From a very young age, we learn to pretend. It's pretense. We learn about falsehood and evil and masquerading very young. We especially learn the biggest way to masquerade if we grow up in church, and that is masquerading as righteous when we know that we are not Peter says, get rid of that hypocrisy. It's evil to wear a mask pretending to be good. It's insincerity. And Jesus likened hypocrisy to washing the outside of a dirty cup, but not the inside. I love that image that Jesus gives. Everyone to cut to the quick of an issue, Jesus says, you're like a cup that you wash the outside of it. So that people see it and see how pretty it is and how shiny it is and say, ooh, that's a nice cup. Look at that cup. But the inside is filthy and filled with mold and decay. He says, what good is the cup? It looks pretty, but it's useless. Who wants to drink out of a moldy cup? Anybody want to volunteer? Not me. Jesus says it's futile to do such a thing. I can see beyond it. I don't just see the outside of the cup. I see the inside of the cup. I don't just see the outside of the tomb. And that one was such a powerful thing that Jesus said as well. He said, you're like a tomb. Whitewashed on the outside. You're pretty on the outside. But on the inside, you're filled with dead men's bones. You're like a grave might be flowers on the surface, but deep, deep down inside, you're dead. Sometimes we pretend as Christians to our great detriment and to the destruction of the church, and it needs to stop. 
Hypocrisy. It's so prevalent in our lives from such an early age. I remember even being little and being such a good pretender, such a masquerader, at least in my own mind. Mom would say, go clean your room. And then anybody else do this? You go into the room and you chuck everything under the bed. You chuck it in the closet, slam the door shut as fast as you can. It's done. Behold my clean room. Everything exactly where it's supposed to be. I was a hypocrite. I pretended the room was clean in an effort to make it appear so even when I knew it was not so. That's hypocrisy. And oh, what a dangerous attitude it is, especially in the church. Nothing destroys our efforts and our labors to bear witness about Christ quicker than hypocrisy. And this just isn't just a matter of bearing witness to non-believers. It is a matter of bearing witness of what Christ has done in our lives to one another as well. Do you realize we're evangelists to one another as Christians? That we are to continually show Christ to one another and to build one another up? That's part of evangelism too. We must show one another Christ by being honest and sincere. Nothing destroys a family quicker than insincerity and dishonesty. Peter says, put it away. Get rid of it. Put it to death. He also says envy. Peter says we have to get rid of our envy. Envy is more than jealousy. We often relate the two, but there's a difference. See, jealousy is kind of wanting what another person has, but envy is so much more. Envy is the complete inverse of being thankful. It's being angry that someone else has received a blessing different from your own. It's not just wanting what somebody else has. It's wanting that they never had it. It's wanting that they never had it. Saying, I wish that good had never happened to that person. That's envy. Envy is being indignant and enraged even that something good has happened to someone else and not you. Envy is when our brother or sister in Christ receives something good and rather than bless our God, rather than praise our great God for giving a good gift to our brother or sister, we start cursing our fellow believer because of the good they've received. Envy is dangerous because we aren't just saying that we wish ill for our fellow human being. We're also, in essence, accusing God of doing wrong by bestowing good on somebody. We are declaring, how dare you, God? Look at me. I deserve that. Why would you bless them and not me? We are accusing God of wrongdoing and being envious. That's a dangerous attitude. Scripture is very clear that God gets to decide how he blesses and curses, how he assigns gifts or challenges. He gets to decide. He is the potter. We are the clay. His sovereignty is supreme, and accusing him of wrongdoing is sin, and it is the worst kind of sin. And ultimately... We're going to destroy our relationship not only with God, with envy, but we will destroy our relationships with everyone else. Envy is like a poison deep in the soul. 
When it gets in, it goes deep. It starts putting its roots down deep inside of our soul. And it's so very difficult to uproot. It starts affecting and infecting everything about us. It, it makes us bitter and angry all the time. I can't tell you how dangerous and detrimental envy is to the local body of Christ. If we do not put away envy, the local church is doomed. Peter says, get rid of it. Peter also says, get rid of slander. Peter says we need to get rid of any evil speech. Slander is, is defined as untrue or dishonest spoken statements intended to harm another person's reputation, business, or status. Any evil speech that is spoken to harm a brother or sister in Christ is slander, and we are told to get rid of it. Friends, is what you're saying building up your fellow believer or is it tearing them down? Slander isn't just things that are solely untrue. It is even things that might be true that are spoken behind other people's backs. Is what you're saying and how you're saying detrimental to your fellow believer? All these sins that Peter lists, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, they all have something in common. They all intend to harm people. All these sins are directed at hurting our brothers and sisters in Christ. They are the inverse of what we are called to do as believers, which is to love one another, to seek one another's good, to build one another up that God may be glorified in us and through us. I love the way Peter speaks about this. Because so often we try to define what something is by just jumping headlong into it. But oftentimes we need to see what something is not to see what it actually is. We need to see what love actually does not look like in order to see what it is. And doing these things is not love. Doing these things is not love. If we are doing them, then the truth is not in us. Love is not in us, and we have not been changed by the Spirit of God. We are called to be different. We are called to love and to have love flow forth from us, to build one another up, but most importantly, to glorify God. If we claim to be people who love God and have the love of God and then display these sins, we are saying to the world, this is what God's love looks like. This is what God looks like. What a terrible way to display our great God. Peter continues saying that we should be like newborn infants, craving pure spiritual milk. We should desire to live free of evil and ill will, to be innocent and pure like little children who crave pure spiritual milk. And what's Peter talking about? What is pure spiritual milk? I get the reference to, to being like an infant, to being innocent of evil. But what is this pure spiritual milk? Well, pure spiritual milk is not only God's word, which is truth, but also the very goodness and kindness of God. We should long for it, Peter says. We don't really think much about longing as Christians, do we? 
But longing is part of what it means to be a Christian. It is inherent in our new nature that we receive from Christ. We have this innate yearning, this fiery desire, a burning, passionate craving and hunger for the goodness and love of God. Not just poured into our lives by Him, but also showing forth from our lives, shining forth from our actions and our words. And it is by this goodness, this kindness of God, and by His word that we grow up into salvation. How are we ultimately saved? By God's goodness. By God's work. The only way we ultimately cross the finish line of being saved is by abiding in the goodness and grace and mercy and truth of our great God. We can't just utter a few words and go and take a dip in the water and then go about hurting and harming whoever we choose and behaving like people who have not encountered the living God. If we have truly encountered the living God, we will never, ever be the same again. We will never be the same again. Doesn't mean that we won't mess up. Doesn't mean we won't sin. But we will not be the same people. Just encountering God's physical presence does this to people. We see it in the Old Testament time and time again. Moses goes up to the mountain to speak with God, to receive the law. And as he comes back down from the mountain, he is changed. He is radiant. He glows just from being in the presence of God. Not just being in the presence of God, just from being in the presence of God's hindquarters, as the text says. God passes by. That's so very important for us to understand. Encountering God always changes a person. Someone says, I'm a Christian, but then doesn't actually love like we're told to. Are they really changed? Have they really encountered the living God? Now Peter says when we encounter him, we're altered. Who we are has fundamentally changed when we meet him. There will be proofs in the pudding. There will be proofs in the way that we live and what we long for in our behavior. Again, it doesn't mean that we don't mess up. It doesn't mean that we don't sin. It doesn't mean that even as brothers and sisters, we don't harm each other. Because invariably, we're going to hurt each other. Sometimes we won't mean to. Sometimes we just will mean to because we're mean-spirited by nature. And we're fighting that as Christians. But when we are confronted with the truth of our behavior, when we see that we have wronged one another, when we are told, you really hurt this person. You really harmed them bad. You need to make amends. We will be quick to repent of our sin because of our new identity and we will be quick to love and rebuild. Our desire will be for the goodness and love of God. So, let me ask you a question. Does your desire, does your behavior display the goodness and love of God. Do you long for the goodness 
and love of God? Do you desire it not only in your life, but do you desire the goodness and love of God for your neighbors, for your brothers and sisters in Christ? If not, my friends, it's time to repent. Let's have a word of prayer together. Father, I am not the most loving individual. Not by nature. Father, the only way that I'm able to display any type of love at all is by your grace. Father, I pray that you would increase that in me. Sometimes I wish harm for people that I shouldn't and... I do not display the behaviors that Peter has laid out for us according to your Spirit's inspiration. And Father, I pray for forgiveness. And Father, may we as a body, may we as a group of individuals repent of our sin. May we repent of these actions that have been laid out. And may we do the opposite. May we love one another with truthfulness and kindness and gentleness and peace. May we love one another greater than we love ourselves. May we sacrifice for one another. May we lift one another up. May we build one another up. Father, we pray this. Father, not just for our own good. We pray it for your glory that your name would be made great, that people, when they see us from the outside, when the unbelievers look upon our lives, Father, may they see that and say, that is so weird, but that is so cool that you may be glorified, Father. Father, may they look at our lives and see you. May they look at the love that we display and say, that's not natural. Where does that come from? And that question lead to you, Father. May our lives be living testimonies to your goodness, to your love, to your mercy, to your grace, Father. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, if you do not know the love of God, if you do not know his mercy, if you have not encountered him, this is the time. You want to know how to love somebody like that? It takes supernatural power and it can be in your life today. All you have to do is surrender. Surrender. Repent of your sin. Declare that Jesus is Lord. We're going to have a time of invitation right now for that. If you need to make that statement of faith, then won't you come forward as we stand and as we sing together. Thanks for joining us for the message today. If you would like more information about this and other teachings, or you'd just like to know more about Jesus, visit our website at wccjb.org or come visit us at 1405 Persimmon Ridge Road in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Check our website and Facebook page for service times. We hope you join us again and that we'll see you soon.